Well, it's that time again for us to dive into the Word of God, and of course uh, we do so with great eagerness for what the Holy Spirit has for us today and what He's going to teach us from this wonderful book of Galatians that we began not too long ago. So I'd ask if you take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1, and uh, be ready, have your uh, thinking caps on. we got lots to cover here, and I trust that the Lord will, uh, will bless it to our hearts. Um, most of us who read Paul's epistles to the churches identify with the churches, and we look to apply what he says to them to our lives as well, and that is as it should be. Since what we're dealing with on one level, Paul writing to the Galatians, is on another level, the Holy Spirit writing to us. What Paul has to say to them, he says to us by extension. But there's perfectly, it's perfectly good and right to identify with Paul himself, as well as look to imitate what he says and how he says it and why he says it. In other words, we want to be like Paul. He himself even invites us to imitate him, who is an imitator of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we glimpse some of Paul's fervor and his strong stance that he takes in his letters with the Galatians and also against false teachers. And I believe that that display is meant to challenge us to be like him, that is Paul, and equally bold for Christ. Now, in fact, the, the church needs leaders like this, don't they, to model aggressive godliness, especially today in our country where leadership is corrupt and men have become feminized and lack backbone. And the church stands to be influenced by this trend. Oh, yes. Now, we hear Paul's passionate voice through the text that speaks of his loyalty to the gospel, to Christ to Christ's church, to his determination to defend it all as, as Im, an implacable, immovable enemy of the enemies of Christ. That's what he is. And we become encouraged by that. We're invigorated. We're psyched up to fight. We say yes and amen to Paul's stance. And we want to be like this. We have an opportunity to see more of him in action now and learn exactly uh, how we're to carry ourselves before the Lord in the places that he has put us to minister. So if you find your way in Galatians chapter 1 to verse 10, I want you to listen to Paul's words as I read it for you. Verse 10, Paul says, For I am, now, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, well, I should not be a slave of Christ. Now that is the verse that is before us. This is our singular focus this morning. One verse? You might be thinking, oh, but it's full and it's an intense verse, I assure you. And besides, in terms of the structure of the letter, this verse was designed to stick out as a standalone verse. Let me explain that to you. Um, because it connects to what Paul just said in verse 9, and it also has elements in it that Paul will elaborate on more fully in the next uh, section, starting in verse 11, some have actually called this verse a transitional verse. 
which means some will deal with it in verses 6 to 9 as part of that section. Others will deal with it uh, as, uh, as in the following section, beginning at verse 11. So it would be part of that section. Uh, it's hard to, to know which, which, to, which section to put it with, so people treat it as a transitional verse. But it doesn't make the transition between these two sections any smoother than if it wasn't there. As, a transitional ver as transitional verses are meant to do. Because they're segues, right? So I wouldn't say that verse 10 is, in the strictest sense, a transitional verse. But that's not to say that the verse isn't necessary. Obviously it is, or Paul wouldn't have written it. So it, it carries Paul's tone forward from the beginning of this particular letter. It tells us the spirit in which Paul intended the readers to receive his letter. And I would agree with the handful of commentators that it is really his emotional response to what's going on. Some would even say his emotional outburst is more like it. I think it's worth reminding ourselves that the Word of God is living and active. And as, as we will continue to read through Paul's letter, we'll see this fact proved in his personal correspondence that we call a letter. It's meant to express tone and emotion in, in certain ways, and verse 10 is one of these ways. Uh, we made the point already, if you remember, that Paul is upset. He's disappointed, even indignant, over the Judaizers' distortion of the gospel, and we might add, over their attempts to discredit him along with his gospel. What were they saying about Paul to the Galatians? You might be wondering that. That's a good question. Well, the opening rhetorical question gives us some idea. The first, the first one asks this, Am I now seeking the approval of men or God? Now, the Greek word behind approval can mean persuade, to persuade somebody, but there is, there, there is a sense in, in it in which it means to win someone's favor. So in a word, we would say approval. And it has that idea here in this text. It would appear then that Paul's critics were telling the Galatians that Paul was more interested in tailoring his gospel message to the particular audience before him in order to ensure that they would accept it. Now, this idea is supported by the second rhetorical question, or am I trying to please men? And they were accusing Paul of accommodating his hearers by preaching to them what they wanted to hear, plain and simple. Now you might be wondering, how would these guys ever get away with that? Now, that doesn't sound like Paul at all. How could, they, how could they even prove this? Well, I don't have to tell you that critics are masters of spinning the truth in order to develop their own narrative and ma manipulate their audience. Uh, just listen to liberal news media today and you know exactly what I mean. So one of their spins was to claim that Paul believed that circumcision and keeping the law was paramount to salvation and that he was preaching it, just not to the Gentiles. He didn't preach it to them because they'd never buy it. He preached it only to the Jews who would welcome it with open arms. And Paul actually indicates later in chapter 5, verse 11, that his critics had indeed thought something like this. He says there, if 
I still preach circumcision, then why am I still persecuted? But the fact that Paul took a firm stand for the gospel of grace that became evident even at the Jerusalem Council would show that he did not preach circumcision by any means. Another of their spins was that they regarded Paul's practice of Jewish customs as further proof that he believed in keeping the law for salvation. For example, we find later in the book of Acts that Paul did um, participate in certain vows uh, of Judaism uh, himself and later with other Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, vows that were uh, provided by the Levitical law, the Levitical code. But practicing Jewish customs was not the same as preaching circumcision. Richard Longnecker, Longnecker rather, the, um, uh, uh, the commentator uh, who uh, we've been referring to on occasion, he observes at this point that it would have been quite natural for Paul to live basically a Jewish lifestyle because he had grown up in a Jewish home. Paul didn't think it sinful or illegitimate for Jewish believers in Jesus to continue expressing their faith in Jewish customs as long as those customs didn't contradict the gospel. He taught, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 to 20, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while circumcised, uncircumcised? Well, he should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commandments is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Now, let me just say very simply and quickly that the idea is that a believer remains in whatever state that he was saved while being faithful to the call of God. That's the idea. It's the call of God that matters. It's not the state in which we were called and are to remain. So this no doubt was Paul's belief from the very start. And it's no surprise that Paul wouldn't have brought up the matter of circumcision or any Jewish custom for that matter to the Gentiles before because there was no reason to, no good reason to. They hadn't grown up in it. It wasn't norm the normative expression of their faith or their Christian life, you see. One final spin that the uh, critics may have uh, taken a truth that they have spun would have been Paul's practice of becoming all things to all men. And this is how he explains it later in 1 Corinthians 9.22. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. You can see how the critics would have had would have would have would have spun this one, right? You see, they may have said he preached to the Jews what he knows would win them over, and he preaches something different to the Gentiles that is sure to win them over. But the truth is, the verse is part of a larger context that actually has to do with Paul's evangelistic strategy, specifically how he contextualized his missionary outreach. You see, Paul did seek to prevent unnecessary offenses. Make no mistake about that. 
What do I mean by that? Well, when he was with the Gentiles, he would try not to offend them unnecessarily. He would eat with them. He would eat their food, participate in their festivities, as, as long as nothing immoral took place. He laughed with them. He enjoyed their music and perhaps even danced with them. As a Jew, that would have been taboo. As a Christian, it was a no-brainer. And he did likewise with the Jews when he was with them. He would participate in Jewish customs that were not in any way contra contrary to the gospel of grace. In fact, one glaring example of this is Acts 16. You may remember, Paul wanted Timothy to go with him to evangelize this community of Jews who knew Timothy and his life. Verse 3 says, So Paul took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places since they all knew that his father was a Greek. Hmm. Well, Paul had Timothy circumcised just to get an audience with these Jews. Timothy's circumcision was purely a cultural matter. Paul was not circumcising him because salvation is by faith in Christ plus works of the law. Oh, no. He, he didn't want to offend these Jews who needed Christ unnecessarily, you see. These Jews wouldn't have given Paul the time of day unless they knew that his Jewish companion was an obedient Jew. But know this, when salvation was the issue, Paul refused to have Titus circumcised. You see, beloved, being all things to all men means whenever possible, whenever we can, and without compromising biblical principles with those uh, we are trying to reach we will participate in their customs as a way to better relate to them, to find common ground with them, so as not to offend them unnecessarily. The famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, you probably remember that name, he dressed the part so as not to offend his audience and be more accepted, find common ground, so he could eventually proclaim the gospel. When Paul was with the Gentiles, he wouldn't violate their social customs that were important for communication. And when he was with the Jews, he wouldn't eat a ham sandwich. Those actions would cause unnecessary offense. The gospel Paul preached was offensive enough. It was by nature offensive. And he wasn't about to edit out the offense to make it more palatable to his audiences. And to argue that Paul did just doesn't hold water. Later, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he stated very plainly in chapter 2 that when he came to the Corinthians, he was very careful to preach the gospel exactly how he received it. He explains that he came to them not as someone superior in speaking, uh, in speaking ability or wisdom, like the Greek orators of the day who could really work up an audience and manipulate them in such a way as to buy their message. By the way, that's literally buy. They charge for their messages. No, in his message, Paul, Paul's preaching was not with persuasive words of wisdom, that is, human wisdom. Rather, he proclaimed to them the testimony of God, determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, Satan is so good at what he does, isn't he? 
His counterfeit apostles always caused God's slaves much trouble in the race. Well, they, were, they were good not only at spinning the truth, but also at projecting onto Paul what they themselves were guilty of. We know today a lot about projection, don't we? They were the people pleasers, not Paul. Paul actually explains later, Galatians 6.12, all who want to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, as good as they were at spinning and projecting, Paul comes back with a solid defense of his office and his message. And, and he wouldn't cause offense unnecessarily, but if the gospel did, well, that was another matter entirely. And apparently his gospel was causing Jews lots of great offense. And we are back in, uh, uh, back, uh, uh, in verse 9 where he tells the Galatians very plainly that those who distort the gospel are to be cursed of God. If anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now, if that's not offensive, I don't know what is. And that brings us right back to where we started, Paul's first rhetorical question. I purposely left out one word that I want to call your attention to now, now that you have some background. It's the word for in your Greek or your English translations, rather, which is a literal translation of the Greek conjunction. But it doesn't capture the sense in the context. For is not a good translation. Knowing that, some translations actually leave it out altogether. But I think we could do better. Remember, this is an emotional outburst from Paul at this point. And this little word helps capture, capture that outburst for us. So coming off verse 9, we might translate, we might translate this little word in verse 10, there which refers back to the pronouncement of anathema that he just made. So reading verses 9 and 10 together, this is the sentiment. You ready? If anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. There, does that sound like I'm trying to please men and not God? That's the idea. It's exactly what Paul was trying to come across, get across. So he was interested in the approval of God. And the last part of verse 10 really clinches that for us. It shows us his loyalty in the matter. If I were trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. And that's the bottom line of Paul's argument. What we have before us in this last clause, this last sentence, are two opposite ideologies that will not tolerate each other. They're competing. If Paul was really living to please men in a way that he was being accused of, well, then there would be no way he would ever be pleasing to God. You cannot have it both ways. Now, that's the context of verse 10 with commentary. What I'd like to do now, now that we know what Paul is saying, I want to take the rest of our time to consider what it really means to be a slave of Christ. What is a slave of Christ? To do that, I want to draw, in classic Puritan fashion, some propositions for you that are undeniable. 
If you know anything about the Puritans, you know how good they were at, at putting together propositional truth from Scripture. And here's how you know if you're drawing a correct proposition from a text. First of all, the reading of the text will make it very obvious. That is, when you, you know the text, you've done your research, and you put together the proposition, the, the, the actual text itself will confirm the proposition. And second, the proposition will bear the full rate, weight of the rest of Scripture. In other words, it doesn't contradict the rest of Scripture. So with that said, I've got four propositions for you. I didn't go ahead and publish these. Uh, my apologies. So you're going to have to listen, but they're short and they're, they're easy. Here's the first proposition. A slave of Christ worships Christ. That's the first proposition. A slave of Christ worships Christ. As with all passages, Galatians 1.10 does not tell us all we need to know about its subject. In this case, a slave, uh, what a slave of Christ is. Uh, nor does it, it give us the final word on the matter. Now, there's a whole theology behind this idea of being a slave of God that we could surely develop just from the New Testament alone if we had the time. And it would comprise much more than Galatians 1.10. What this passage gives us is just an aspect, one aspect of this theology, but it is profound. Let's take a look. Paul implies, by the way that he structures this verse, that he is a slave of Christ. Now, he does what slaves of Christ do, as we'll see in a moment with the other three propositions. But just a word on the idea of slave, I think, is in order here. Slavery in the first century, and also in the ancient world of the Old Testament, was not racially based, as we know it to be, or to have been, in the Western world in the 16th, 17th, and 1800s. In fact, Hebrews in the Old Testament were slaves of other Hebrews. Rather, ancient slavery was a matter of one person indenturing himself to someone else whom he owed money, or if he simply couldn't exist on his own in society and needed a place to work and live. But be that as it may, hear this, no matter which kind of slavery we're talking about, none is good. All right? Slavery of any kind is no doubt the worst possible relationship that one can ever be in if that one happens to be the slave of somebody else. That, I think, is not debated. And that's why it's so remarkable that God would talk about his worshipers, those whom he set free, as his slaves. And it is slave, as the Greek word will show. It is not the watered-down version, servant. If you've got servant in your translation, you want to cross that out and write slave over it. It's one of the wonderful paradoxes of, of the Christian faith, you see. One is truly free only when one becomes a slave of Christ. And just, Jesus said that, that he sets men free truly only when they put on his yoke of lordship and they submit to his will and follow him and be loyal to him even to death. I would say it, it, I would say it is likewise remarkable that Paul would call himself a slave of Christ in a letter that will go on to argue vehemently for Christian freedom. Now let me go further. All right? I love this. 
The slave-master relationship takes on a new profound meaning in the Christian faith. New profound meaning. It's really the language of worship. Worship? Yes. Only in one's relationship with God can it ever be said that he, the slave, loves the Lord, his master. Only in this relationship. Jesus settles any doubts about this when he argued that one can serve one can no one can serve two masters for he will love the one and hate the other. Do you remember that? Love is worship terminology. We are not to love uh, we are not to love the Lord our God. Are we not to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind? And is God not our Lord? He is our love and he is our Lord. So a slave of Christ is one who has a love relationship with Christ, who has entered into a covenant relationship with him and will receive Christ's loyal love, chesed in Hebrew, all throughout the, the Psalter, which stands for God's covenant loyal love. And also his slave promises, that's us, to love, honor, and obey his husband. That's Christ. What a glorious relationship this is. Beloved, how, how the Bible terms things is very important. And Paul would consider himself a slave of Christ, and that's noteworthy. We talked about this in our Sunday school hour, how the Bible describes things. Very important. I don't believe many in the church are accustomed to talking this way. When's the last time anybody ever told you they were a slave of Christ? Paul was accustomed to talking this way, and so were James and Peter and John. Would you ever consider yourself to be a slave of Christ? Would you use that terminology with someone? Is, is, the, is he the object of your affection? Do you love him more than you love anyone else? You see, in a post-Christian and anti-Christian era, where people are redefining everything, even what it means to be a human being, there are pockets of Christianity that are sadly influenced by this trend and they are redefining what it means to be a Christian. All the more reason why you need to be precise. The Judaizers were doing this back in Paul's day and the Galatians were starting to buy it. And let's not think that something like that doesn't happen today. It does. Please understand, as our world gets worse... It will matter how you define yourself. It used to be just marriage and family, but now we can add to that what a Christian is and the importance of the ordinances and also, and also Sabbath Sunday, all of which I believe must, we must guard because they communicate to the world what we're all about. And they will more, more loudly with the increase of wickedness and immorality in our society. You must be clear about this, beloved, so that there is no mistaking who you are and where your loyalties lie. Next three propositions communicate what slaves of Christ look like. Here's number two. A slave of Christ prizes God's approval above man's approval. A slave of Christ prizes God's approval among man's approval. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God 
Paul asks a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. As if we have argued a slave of Christ worships Christ, listen to this very carefully, and a relationship with Christ is the only instance where a slave worships his master, then we would be right to understand any words that Paul uses to describe the attitudes and actions that flow from the slave's worship of Christ as being worship terminology as well. That just makes sense. It's in a context of worship. The words are worship terms. Having said that, we would be right then in saying that approval in this context belongs to the language of worship. Worshiping God is about seeking his approval in everything you do. You could say that approval is a heart word that speaks of motivation. What motivates me to do what I do? Well, it's God's approval. That is what I regard more highly than anything else. Because that's who I worship. Whose approval do you seek most of all? Now, you need to be honest with yourself. There are times in the Christian life when we switch from Christ being the object of our affection to something else. That's just plain idolatry. It happens. That's what sin is. Who, whose approval do you seek most of all? Whom do you regard most of all? Whoever it is at that very moment is the one you worship. And seeking that person's approval is what motivates you toward a certain behavior. Now let's be clear how this works out in our relationships because there is a sense in which Christian employees should work with the approval of their employer. And Christian children should look to their parents' approval in what they do. And Christians who are good citizens of their state and country uh, are, are important, uh, and they don't break laws. But in each of those cases, the motivating factor is not the approval of the God-ordained authority, but God himself. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? In the first instance, for example, the Christian knows... God holds him accountable to a good work ethic, and he wants to, uh, he wants the approval of God in his ethic, his work ethic. Christians should obey their parents because that's what wins God's approval, who command them to obey. And what motivates Christians to be obedient to government is God's command to do so. And let me also say that in each of those cases, because God's approval is what matters most the Christian could refuse to obey the authority over them if it would be sin to obey them, right? Do you see how that works? Bottom line is to seek the approval of God. That is the bottom line. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because why? John 12, 43, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Number three. Third proposition, a slave of Christ makes it his goal to please Christ. A slave of Christ makes it his goal to please Christ. Very simple. Or am I trying to please men? Paul asks, again, rhetorical. Answer is assumed. In fact, the intended answer to this rhetorical question is not just no, but no, I'm trying to please God. 
which the last clause in this verse makes perfectly clear. A slave of Christ does not please men. Now we know from Paul's teaching elsewhere that he doesn't mean this in an absolute sense either, right? For example, in Romans 15, following a discussion on the weak and the strong in conscience in chapter 14, Paul does say in verses 2 and 3, each of us, should, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, he commands the church, just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. Now, in these instances, it's clear that slaves of Christ want to accommodate their neighbor. But accommodating them in the way or in the same way that they are called to love them, which is really the way that our first love calls us to love them. We love people, enemies included, only the way God wants us to, not necessarily the way our neighbor wants us to, right? It is not loving to overlook your brother's sin, even though... He may want you to. And telling an unbeliever the gospel is the most loving thing that you can possibly do, even though in doing so he finds you to be terribly offensive and insensitive to his view. So the same, in the same way we love our neighbor, we strive to please our neighbor. We strive to please our neighbor in the, in the way that God would be most pleased. God always comes first, in that order. Jesus says so. Love God and neighbor the way God wants you to. So we please God and we please neighbor the way God wants us to. Paul states in no uncertain terms in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4-6, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not intending to please people, but to please God who examines our hearts. For we never use flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.4 that Christians actually need to be very careful not to let anything distract them from pleasing Christ. He says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. That would be God for us. This is why, by the way, Paul sums up his letters to the churches, basically as instruction on how to please Christ in the Christian life. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally, then, brothers and sisters, we request and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are actually, just as you actually do walk, that you excel even more. What a summary. I want to challenge you this morning, beloved, as I have challenged myself these past two weeks, being in this very verse, to rehearse one of the New Testament foundation verses 2 Corinthians 5, 9, over and over and over in your mind on a consistent basis. Therefore, we also make it our ambition, whether out of the body or in it, to please Christ. 
foundation verse. So here's what this looks like, practically speaking. You ready? Before you set out to do anything, say anything, ask yourself if God is the object of your affections at that very moment. Ask yourself, what would most please my first love in this context? Never set out to accomplish anything in your life or respond to anyone without first asking yourself if it most pleases Christ. Number four. Being a people pleaser is incongruous with being a slave of Christ. Being a people pleaser is incongruous to being a slave of Christ. This proposition is closely related to the one we just rehearsed, but it does introduce an element of, uh, of what I'm calling incongruity, and so I've singled it out. And I'm using this phrase, people-pleaser, to refer to a sinful way of pleasing others, as we've just talked about, whether we regard what someone else may say to us or, or about, about us more than what we or more than, than what God says about us and to us. That would be a people-pleaser. We regard what they say more than what God says. Another way to say that, by the way, is to fear man rather than God. And when I say that it's incongruous to being a slave of Christ, I mean that this behavior of regarding others more than we regard Christ is out of place in the Christian life. It's out of place. It's out of keeping with our confession. It's unsuited for Christian living and ministry. If Paul was a slave of Christ, he could not be a people pleaser. Something Hendrickson says in his commentary was actually reprehensible even to slaves. I found this very interesting. This is a, this is a great truth. In Colossians 3.22, Paul says this, slaves, obey those who are your human masters and everything, not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Slaves were not even to be people pleasers, but were to, were to, to serve with their heart or from their heart, if they were Christians. A people pleaser is someone who engages in actions that are not sincere just to gain the praise of others. That's what a people pleaser is. It's, it's really hypocritical. A slave of Christ, as Paul was, surrendered totally to the will of God, even to leaving himself open to be killed for the gospel. He will remind the Galatians later in chapter 6, verse 17, how he bore the marks of Jesus on his body, which is a reference, by the way, to that incident that Luke records for us in Acts 14, 19, where Paul went to the Galatian churches, specifically Iconium, where they stoned him and left him for dead. Many believers from that city now are hearing this letter read, and they remember what that was all about. He was a true model of what it means to pick up your cross. And always, uh, and always thinking about how this impacts our personal relationships with family and friends and co-workers and acquaintances, we can say that Paul, in the same way that Paul sought the approval and pleasure of men only in a way that would gain God's approval and pleasure, so Paul became a slave of others 
as a slave of Christ. That's a very important qualifier. He became a slave to others as a slave of Christ. He puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves on account of Jesus. To quote F.F. F. Bruce at this point, quote, He was a slave to God and unreservedly at Christ's disposal, and for Christ's sake, he is also a slave of others unreservedly at their disposal in the service of Christ. End quote. You get that? As a slave to others, for Christ's sake, Paul serves them well, even if they thought he was doing them a great disservice. It was pleasing to Christ for Paul to curse his enemies in the gospel. Verse 9, anathema. He went back through the churches in Galatia, and at the end of his first missionary journey, it says in Acts 14, he went strengthening the disciples. That is a great act of service by a slave of Christ. But listen to how he did it. Strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Is that how you would strengthen other Christians who are fretting over being persecuted? By telling them that that's supposed to happen to faithful Christians? And that God is bringing them trials for their good? I know it sounds counterintuitive, but that's exactly what we should be telling them. Paul pleased God by persuading men. It's another thing he did as a slave of Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. The sage knew the importance of pleasing his brother in a way that pleased God, even in the Old Testament. He says in Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Are you truthful with your fellow Christians? Do you tell them what they need to hear in love? Do you take them seriously and refuse to minimize their troubles with a view to, to helping them? This is, a, this is an important one. I remember early on in my ministry, years and years ago, encountering a young woman who claimed to be a Christian and had this incessantly annoying habit of apologizing for how stupid she was. Oh, I'm, I'm so stupid, she would say. The fact that she walked around with crutches claiming to have all kinds of ailments besides made me uh, 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 made her repeated mantra um, questionable. I, mean, I, I wondered if it was really for attention than for any than, than whether she really meant it. Oh, I'm so stupid and I wish someone would help me, kind of thing, you know. So I, I found out really which it was when I confronted her one time. Actually, it was the next time that she apologized to me for claiming to be stupid. I took her at her word, which was probably the first time someone ever did. And not willing to minimize her problem, I said, Wow, that is serious. 
Christians should not be in that position. I would love to help you overcome that. We have a counseling ministry, and it's for you too. And she made it, immediately became defensive. She said, thanks, but no thanks. And that was the last time I ever saw her. Well, beloved, seeking to be a slave to others as a slave of Christ and seeking their pleasure and approval in a way that gains the pleasure and approval of Christ, our first love, is not popular. You will turn more people away than you will win. And to worldly wisdom, it makes absolutely no sense if you want to build a large church Keep your job, become popular with the in-crowd, stay out of trouble with the law, and avoid persecution. But then again, those things don't really matter much to the slave of Christ, who finds it an insignificant matter that he or she would be examined by any human court, since only the one who examines him is Christ. Are you a people pleaser or a slave of Christ? If Christ's slave, you will find people pleasing out of step with who you are. And while you worship Christ, you will do so, do so by seeking his pleasure and his approval. And our Father and God, we are grateful for this word, this timely word from Galatians 1.10. A word that is so timely, it, it seems as though the Apostle is speaking to us directly. And of course we know that the Holy Spirit meant for us to hear it, which is why he included it in his canon. What we read here, Lord, is the norm for Christians, for our thinking and for our behavior. We pray then that we would take it to heart. We pray that we would recognize that we, be, we became slaves the moment we said, I do, to Christ. And Father, we pray then that we would be faithful to our commitment, that we would strive to show the world what it means to be a slave of Christ. Great freedom, great joy, great provision, and a great inheritance that awaits and the ability to overcome and push through the morass of trials that may come at us at record speed, and, uh, and, and, and a thankful heart for them, for they are our platforms for growth and ministry. Lord, we pray then that you will find us exactly as you have called us to be, for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.